Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited to be talking today with Ben Smith. Ben is a journalist, author, and co-founder of the global news organization Semaphore. He's the former media columnist for the New York Times and founding editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. His book, Traffic, Genius Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral, has just been released. Ben, welcome into the back room. Thanks so much for having me. You've been a busy guy these last couple of weeks, I see. Yeah, there's a lot going on. You released a book, which we're going to talk about in a bit. And uh, I know a lot of people talk or are very interested in talking a lot with you about very granular details of the whole Gawker, BuzzFeed News, Genesis, and rivalry and all that. And I do want to get into some of that as well. But I, I find you to be a very bright guy, and you've certainly been at the forefront of an incredible paradigm shift in the news and media business. And so to me, there's so much more interesting meta, macro-type subjects I'd love to get your opinion on. So we'll do that as well. I want to just peel back the onion a little bit and, and spend a minute or two on childhood, because I'm really interested in what kind of kid you were like. Were you a, a news uh -huh. and media junkie? Yeah, I think I was mostly a nerd. I was mostly taking classes and reading books and was not, I mean, I was interested in the news, but I didn't really, I wasn't a junkie. I mean, I kind of, it's like, I, it's hard to remember how you would be a junkie in those days when there wasn't unlimited supplies of like news heroin. I was a big sports fan and I remember that I would breathlessly listen to the football scores on 10-10 wins, which, you know, would rotate, would come around every 20, 22, you give us 22 minutes, we'll give, we'll you, give the you the world. world. And yeah. I would, and I would sit there waiting for the football, updated football scores to come around because that was the best way to get them. Yeah, you were plugged in a little. I'm a little bit older than you. And when I was, I think maybe nine years old, I was hanging around for no political reason in particular, but I would hang around the Nixon campaign headquarters and I would hand um, out bumper stickers. And so at what point did you start sniffing around and going, wow, this is not only interesting, but I want to make a living doing this kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd been like on my high school and college newspapers, but was not like one of these people who really, really got into it. But when I was in college, I got a summer internship at the Jewish Forward. Oh, okay. Um, my grandfather covered that religiously. Uh, yeah, probably in Yiddish. It was in Yiddish mm -hmm. for, you know, it was a huge, it had been this, you know, grand 300,000 circulation paper in the turn of the 20th century. But that had, the Yiddish edition had, was down to a relatively small number of devoted readers by the 90s, but had launched an English language edition and uh, in the mid 90s. And yeah, I cover it. I was tasked to cover a state Senate race on the Upper West Side and just absolutely loved it. I mean, it was just so, the people, you know, the sort of, very smart people struggling over this kind of odd small job and, you know, all the complexities of politics and power. And I think I believe one of them accused the other of not really of having, I think one produced the other's baptismal certificate as a form of opposition research, suggesting they weren't really Jewish. I mean, it was a, mm. it was a lot of fun. That, back in the days when oppo research was oppo research. <laughs> this all sounds so Jewy. Have you ever, have you ever been to, I think it's, the forward. Have you ever been to their original office building, like on the Lower East Side? Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Building. It was, yeah. it was, I believe it was maybe the one, the tallest office building in Manhattan when it was built. Mm -hmm. It towers over Seward Park, and it was the and the printing presses were in the basement. It was, I mean, hard to remember what a powerful institution something like that yeah. was, but it was like Twitter. I mean, it was a big deal. It had three hundred thousand subscribers. It was this fiercely socialist, anti-communist. 
you know, working class newspaper. And so who is Ben Smith today when he's not looking at a computer screen? Like hobbies, interests, are you binging Netflix? Are you out playing ice hockey? Or are you, are you a dog or a um, cat person? Who are you? I don't know. I have boring interests. I play as much tennis as I can, hang out with my kids whenever they'll have me, read novels when I can. I feel like I'm happier when I'm reading novels. What are you watching on TV? Um, I mean, Succession. I feel, I, and and I like Succession, but also feel like, like we had a media summit a couple like last month, and I did a bunch of interviews, and it was on a Monday. And as I was going to sleep Sunday, I realized I actually, as homework, had to watch Succession because wow. all these people would be making jokes about it, and I had to get the jokes. I really have to say, I did, I did love Mrs. Davis. I have I, oh, that on Peacock. Good. I was pretty blown away by that. It's like a screwball thriller pitting a nun against an all-knowing AI. Are you watching the White House Plumbers? No, it's on my list. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love the guys who produced it. Is it good? It, I started watching it. It's pretty good. It's got a very, like, uh, uh, what's that um, Vegas heist movie? Um, Ocean's Eleven? Ocean's it's got It has a feel like that. It's very, like, you know, oh, good. the music and the, and the, and the pacing and the editing. You're rooting for the rooting for the bad guys, that kind of vibe. I don't know. I don't know how it work, how it ends up. The whole Watergate thing. I don't want anybody to spoil it for me because I, I I don't want to know how it ended up. And a couple of early influences who uh, have inspired you to end up doing what you do. Let's see. I mean, I you know, my the, the editor of of the forward who became the editor of the Sun, this very eccentric guy named Seth Lipsky, is one of the great editors. A lot of journalists who people read kind of came through him and just had this real kind of obsession with scoops and with getting news before anybody else, which is, you know, they call it news. Mm -hmm. It makes a big difference. Kind of taught me that and also had this, you know, we just always have your back when you inevitably got into trouble, which was very important to me. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the other person I've, I've been very influenced by is Maggie Haberman, mm -hmm. who was, um, she and I were in New York City Hall together and she and I sort of sat across a desk from her and watched her work and, and had never really seen anybody get people to tell them things quite like that and, mm -hmm. and really learned an enormous She seems to her. certainly know how to get Trump <clears throat> around her finger. Yeah, but it's like a, there's a kind of reporter who gets information because they kiss people's asses and because they sort of trade favors for access. There's a, you know, access journalism at, in, at its worst. And then there's another who gets information because everybody's scared of them. Mm -hmm. And Maggie is definitely the latter. Mm -hmm. and People that, like is, her and they respect her, but they are fundamentally terrified of her. And that's a great place to be. And, and it's especially impactful with someone like Trump who really doesn't fear most people and, or respect people. And I think with Maggie, yeah. he does. I think the thing that I always struck me is that people were like, what is her deal? How does she manage to get news from him? Do they have some special relationship? And it's like, oh, no, I've seen her cover, you know, a half dozen major political figures. And it's always like this. She has so infiltrated their world that she's getting all this information and, and then is totally in their heads because she's no, she knows better than they do what their people are all saying and doing. Mm -hmm. And she's on your hit list, right? You'd love to get her at Semaphore? I mean, wouldn't anyone? Good answer. So I want to start with a, a more of a macro question to you because it's something I've kind of in my 63 years sort of look at the generational aspect to it all. Um, you know, Andy Warhol once uh, famously said, everybody's seeking their 15 minutes of fame and the internet and social media in particular has given people their 15 minutes of fame 24 seven. 
And we all know what that means, whether it's pictures of your spaghetti or here I am at three o'clock and here I am at four o'clock and blah, blah, blah. It seems like certainly kids, <clears throat> teenagers, young people, but even people of my generation live for that adulation, that affirmation, that attention they get online. Is that in a way destroying our culture? Is it more of a bad thing than a good thing? Because we all know the positives. But when you look at statistics about teenage girls and depression and suicide rates, there's a lot of bad stuff too. What's your feeling on all that? You know, I guess I, I always find it hard to like step outside the moment and judge it in a way. And I think, you know, all, obviously always people our age are very disturbed by youth culture. Like that's the point of youth culture is to bother us. And always a hundred percent of the time, people our age think that what the kids are doing is bad and destroying society. And sometimes we're right, but I think it's very hard to step outside that dynamic and kind of know if we're right. I mean, I, I yeah, I do. Right. But I do think there are, there are obviously, I mean, I think that, I mean, the thing that I think I find strange is that like kids these days are like have doing less drugs and having less sex than kids in our era when we were, when our parents were freaking out about that. And now they're, you know, at best having rich, fun interactions with their friends digitally and staying very much in touch at worst being bullied or feeling worthless because of what they see on the internet or getting sort of, are you saying you that know, it's a bad just thing? Just like passively <clears throat> scrolling. Are you saying that as a positive? Like, but I, I guess I, I have trouble. Bal I have trouble sort of sorting out if it's a positive. I think we are just biased towards saying, you know, when we were driving around drunk, and that was that was the, that was how it was supposed to be. Speak and now for these yourself, kids these Ben days, Smith. They're sitting home and playing video games, and that's terrible. But I, I think it's a little hard to judge, particularly given how frantic our generation of parents was about all the horrible cultural forces affecting us. Yeah. I mean, in my teens, <clears throat> I did my fair share of stuff and I had my fair share of physical encounters with girls. I feel like at that stage of your life, those things are really important because you're, that means you're interacting with people. You know, you're not sitting and staring into a computer screen. And another statistic that just came out recently was about loneliness and, you know, loneliness yeah. is on the rise. And it's just I don't know. I look at my own daughter. I have a daughter who's 19 and the lack of reading books to having any kind of downtime where you just sort of look up and ponder and think and brainstorm and look out the window. And the nanosecond these kids have a free minute, it's on the phone. There's no, there's just no contemplation yeah. time. I share that intuition. I'm just a little suspicious of my own kids these days instincts, but I do have them. For yeah. Sure. To me, it's a little more than like, oh, Elvis is shaking his hips, you know, like that kind of, oh, the kids today. It, it really, I don't know. It just yeah, thinks... but people then were dismissive of it. They thought it was a huge national crisis. There yeah. was like federal action against Elvis. But it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was rooted in nothing. I mean, it was like the man was right, shaking his Right. I just his think hips. we're not really going to know which of the things we feel are ridiculous until right. you know, later. Well, that's, a, that's fair enough. But I, but I know, but I find my own, forget the kids, like I find my own relationship with social media mm -hmm. kind of always troubling. And, I, and, you know, I Twitter kind of rewired my brain. Right. At times, really fun. At times, really kind of felt kind of addictive and bad. Yeah. Well, there's a book about rewiring the brain. I forget what it's called. It came out maybe 10 or so years ago. And it was really interesting about all that. But Rick Wilson has a book called Everything Trump Touches Dies. And pretty much if you look at anything in government from top to bottom institutionally, it's kind of true. Do you think the internet or social media in particular is just another victim of Trump and Trumpism? 
like if we didn't have him and it today, oh. would it be a nicer, safer place for all of us? No. I mean, I think if you look all over the world over the last decade, there was a kind of right-wing populism that Trump embodied in the U.S. and that there are a dozen other people that embodied in other, in other movements in other places that, you know, the, whose, whose style was like, you know, was totally perfectly adapted to social media. I don't think social media created them or without, you know, I don't think it's so simple, but certainly if you think about these sort of the, you know, sort of the taking the thing that is socially inappropriate or sort of politically inappropriate to talk about that and that everybody is, and that there's a lot of anger around immigration in the Europe and the United States and just sort of tapping into that and driving and feeding off that anger and following, among other things, the internet traffic to mm -hmm. that anger. Mm -hmm. And then and then on the flip side, saying transgressive, provocative, false things really loudly to create a conflict, to show that you're outside the system, you know, was perfectly adapted to the way Facebook was constructed and, you know, drove the kind of engagement meant that I think kind of did poison social media and fed on social media. But I don't, I mean, I, but I think if you look around the world, it wasn't Donald Trump per se. And so this is a good segue into your book, which is called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. So clicks and likes and traffic and how traffic is going to fuel advertising growth and all that. What is the main takeaway from your experience during that whole period and therefore what you hoped to convey in this book? So, I mean, you know, the book is, it's really, the thing I wanted to understand was kind of the origin story of this moment, like, which I think everybody feels so disoriented and so alienated from the news and from the media and from politics. And I think it was trying to sort of understand kind of where that started. And it really did start in like a place at a time, which was lower Manhattan in the early 2000s. And people who, who, you know, were very sick of days media, which had been, was barely connected to the internet and which had totally screwed up coverage of the Iraq war and want, and were trying to build and often had these very utopian ideas about what the alternative would be. And, and in some ways thought that they had achieved this utopia when Barack Obama was elected, mm -hmm. there was this conventional wisdom. You really have to kind of put your head back 15 years to remember it, but that the internet was just fundamentally a progressive space that was built for young people with anti-war views to elect Howard Dean. And if that didn't work, we're going to get to elect Barack Obama. Huffington Post, you know, was a sort of embodied that among others. Facebook, above all, was 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 like, you know, that one of the co-founders of Facebook went to work for Obama. Obama visited Facebook in 2011. And there was a, it was sort of unspoken that this is obviously kind of a democratic institution. It's like you visit Madison, Wisconsin to talk to college kids. You visit Facebook to talk to college kids. And you know, and I, and I think, just, I mean, I think my sort of main takeaway going back was just sort of how wrong that consensus was and the extent to which all of the forces that would really ultimately make Donald Trump the pinnacle of that whole moment were there from the start. The news business in particular has changed so much over the years, although it does seem in some way that it's, the pendulum does swing back and forth. You had this explosion of these new global news outlets and uh, you had Axios and Politico and all these independent entities taking on the Washington Post and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. And, you know, you start to see the reporters from Axios and Politico getting the same nightly mm -hmm. cable news attention. And, and now we sort of see like maybe there is a little bit of a switch coming back to the more traditional news outlets. Where do you see the industry today? And that sort of dovetails into 
the next subject I want to talk with you about, which is, of course, Semaphore, the global news organization that you recently founded. And because it is a highly competitive space, the news business yeah. today. And it seems like it's in constant flux. So where is the industry today? Where do you think it's all going? And including Semaphore in that. So, I, I mean, I think the thing you said about the pendulum swinging is just right. Media is, is this weird business. I think it swings because people get, you know, the, it's not swinging on its own. You know, we are, you and I are people who are reading the news and we got, and I think a lot of people got sick of this wooden newspaper journalism that got everything wrong in the early aughts and wasn't even on the internet and, and loved suddenly you could find anybody's view from anywhere in the world and read all the foreign press and get these alternate perspectives 20 years ago. And that was so cool. And then I think, you know, the sort of poisoning of social media and all the things you were just talking about mean that we're a lot of people are now in a place where we feel totally overwhelmed by all the incoming, unsure which of these different voices to trust. And some of that sort of, I think, does produce a sense of like, let's go, we got to go back to these trusted spaces like the New York Times. But I think the other big dynamic, and I mean, I think podcasts like this are very much part of it, is that People are looking not so much for sort of an institutional voice, but for a person who is, you know, bringing insight, bringing new information, and also helping to steer through this whole chaotic mess and tell you, yeah, like kind of, oh yeah, this was an interesting piece over here. You should read this, ignore this guy. He's crazy. You know, just, and, and, you know, for reasons that are obvious across media and politics and sports, it's just a moment when people do connect more to individuals than to institutions. And when you start talking to like journalists like like me about, you know, creators and influencers and brands, personal brands, like we kind of throw up in our mouths a bit, mm -hmm. like it's not the world that we are most comfortable in. But I do think that's sort of a reality of how people communicate now. And and yeah, so that's and that's certainly what we're trying to do at Semaphore to, to say, to try to take the best of, but some ways a traditional newsroom, you know. We, this is really carefully reported stuff that's really well edited and, and we have a brand that does sort of stand behind all that, but to build around individual voices and individuals who are experts on their beats and to, and to, who are going to tell you the difference between the facts and the, their opinion and bring in other dissenting voices as well and try to sort of provide both insight and a array of views. So these, so these, so that when you read an article and think, ah, oh, this is interesting. You don't then have to go Google seven other articles to triangulate what really happened. We recently saw the closing of uh, BuzzFeed News, and your book was released right at the same time. And uh, although I got a journalism degree 40 years ago, I spent much of my career in marketing, and I can't imagine a better marketing coup for your book. Yeah, one of my than that closing of. <laughs> I mean, the timing is in incredible. One of my, my colleagues who has a particularly dark sense of humor, Katie Natopoulos, like the second they sent out this email saying that BuzzFeed News was closing, she's one of the great reporters there, tweeted, these Ben Smith marketing stunts are going too far. <laughs> Very fortuitous timing. I'm sure your publisher was incredibly pleased with that. Yeah, probably. So uh, I, I, I love the idea of Semaphore. I love how you've been on record saying you raised money from wealthy individual donors rather than VCs because you don't want to have this exit strategy thing hanging over the company's head. You want, it, you want to build something that's going to be around for a long time for its employees. And in my digging, I saw something which I, I have to ask you about Sam Bankman-Fried. He was a, an original 
investor. Yeah, uh, that was that was an unpleasant surprise. Pre-handcuffed Sam Bankman-Fried, obviously. I want to make a yes. point of that. Uh, it's not like he was getting arrested for wire fraud and you were like, hey, by the way, you got some money to invest in my company. So was that like just utterly shocking when the news ultimately broke after having him be part of the seed group? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I think he he had been this ubiquitous investor in many reputable things like ProPublica and that, and obviously, had we known that he was about to be indicted, we would not have, or, or suspected it, we wouldn't have been in business with him. In our last couple of moments, I got to ask you about the Durham report. Obviously, you were, yeah. you, you guys, uh, you put out the Steele dossier back in 17, I believe. What do you make of that report that came out? I hate to use the term nothing burger because it seems so overused, but to me, it just feels like that report was just a big, fat, no, juicy I nothing burger. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fun fundamentally he was hoping to find criminal behavior and did not. And, you know, there are these competing narratives, right, around the Trump-Russia thing. One, that it was a, you know, that fundamentally Trump was like a Russian agent or asset or something like what Christopher Steele's sources alleged that he'd been compromised. Um, his sources, which turned out to be nonsense sources. And alternately, that it was a total hoax that was, that was... You know, and this is sort of the you know the Durham thesis that it was sort of a deliberate it was a conspiracy by Democrats and the media to undermine his totally legitimate presidency. And I actually think that the truth of that whole story is pretty unsatisfying to everybody. Like the Russians obviously tried to help Trump and did with particularly with WikiLeaks. All they turned to the Facebook stuff and the social media stuff, which was super interesting at the time, turned out to have been totally negligible in its effect. Also, liberals who thought that Trump, who had, I think a big part of it was coming out of that election. A lot of Democrats thought there's just no way this guy won legitimately. There must have been some trick and went looking for the trick. And that was delusional. Like he won because he was wildly popular with lots of people, not a majority of the electorate, but he really won the election. And I think people, a lot of Democrats just didn't want to grapple with that and got obsessed with this basically delusional theory that he was somehow a Russian plant. And I don't know. And I think the reality is this kind of messy, complicated story that doesn't please anybody. My last question, which is really kind of two questions, but uh, I know you guys have been covering, especially today, Santos. You have a lead story on the homepage. And also Trump. In terms of them being more symbolic of what I consider to be the death of the Republican Party. Like here you have this indicted, I mean, the, the resume of badness of Trump can go on and on, impeachments and all that. And then you have Santos, which is just almost like a cartoon character, but yet being completely defended by the party in a sense. I see Santos as a totally conventional American figure, and both parties have their share of weirdo grifters. A lot of Democrats have been indicted, and when Democrats need the votes, they're, you know, they dance around that. I, I got to ask, give me one Democrat who's as bad as Santos. Um, I mean, you know, the most recent to be indicted, although he was acquitted, was Senator Robert Menendez, who's under investigation again. But like, you know, lots of politicians. I mean, just there's a That's kind a of and, and Menendez is not a grifter. He's not mm -hmm. a fake. Not a socio he's like, not a sociopath. Menendez is a very strange character of a sort who, if you hang around politics, you do see people like that. I actually I am not a George Santos defender, obviously. But I do think part of the reason that story is so fun to follow is because these crimes are pretty victimless. Like, I keep waiting for them to find the widows and orphans he's ripped off 
And everything seems so sort of, there was something in a kitten adoption Well, there's program. the Vietnam vet and the dog story. We the dogs. The dog thing is really bad. <laughs> the Vietnam vet. But it's vet. all very, but it's all like very, very small. Like there's a lot of things in politics where people are really getting hurt. And Santos, I think, does not seem like that. And I think in a way this gets to this bigger argument about like, is Donald Trump an aberration from the sort of course of American history, or does he basically represent everything about the Republican Party? I think there are two ways to see that, right? And I think I do see more that, and I think maybe the future of the Republican Party is Donald Trump, but I, I do think he was something new and different. Well, the thing about Santos, I guess his biggest fraud is against the people who voted for him. You know, when we can't vote for someone yeah. and put someone in Congress because oh, we didn't yeah, get he's the gonna get a, he's going to get indicted, obviously. I'm not defending him, but but in the scope of of high crimes and misdemeanors, his are just like incredibly entertaining. Well, that's the key. You, I think what you just said is the key is that he is such, and that's why I said he's like a comic book character. He is yeah. entertaining to watch because it's almost like watching John Lovitz. Remember the John Lovitz character on Saturday Night yeah. Live? You know, the liar, but he was yeah. sort of fascinating and funny. And that's what, what Santos is. I know you got to run, so we'll leave it on that note. You're a really interesting guy, and I could probably talk to you for hours about all this stuff, and I do hope, therefore, you'll come back again. But good luck to you with Semaphore. I'm a big believer in independent journalism, and so I hope to see it succeed. Well, it's great to talk to you. Thank, thank you so much for having me on, of course, anytime. Take care. Take care, Ben. That's episode 76. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostro. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. Also, if you can either follow and or subscribe, that's very helpful too, and you'll be notified whenever we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn in the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Ben Smith. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>